Well, we have spent several Sundays together with this, uh, this verse as our theme, what I consider, what I firmly believe should be the, uh, the creedal statement of, of, of every person who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We took a quick break from it last Sunday. We celebrated our annual meeting Sunday together. and We're reminded that, that each of us has a gift from God that is not only the Spirit who indwells us, but then the Spirit also gives us gifts for the specific purpose of building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ that, that we are a part of. Paul's letters speak to local churches. And so, yes, there is the body of Christ, theologically speaking. There's the body of Christ, practically speaking, Applewood, our body of Christ. And your gift, your gifts, my gifts, are needed here, according to the Scriptures, to make us the most healthy and fruitful and effective place that we can be for the ministry that Christ has called us to. And the bottom line is, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where anyone is exempt. We don't get a pass. You know, we can't say that we're too old or too tired or too busy or too something. We don't get a pass on contributing in some way to the life that we share together. I was talking with someone this week. It might have been one of you, but I have holes in my brain, and I can't remember who it was. But they were telling me about their father, who was 90-plus years old, still very sharp mentally, still reading the Scriptures, praying avidly for people in his life and in his congregation, and has the ministry of encouragement. He sends notes and sends email blessings to people in the life. 90 plus years old, he is still giving himself to others. I love that. Which brings us right back to the theme of, of death to self. I, uh, I read a ridiculous example this week, but, but I have to share it with you because it just jumped right out. This whole idea of death to self, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's difficult. It, it challenges us at every turn because, because the sin nature from which we were delivered in Christ and yet still shows its head from time to time in our lives wants to, wants to call attention to us. And so death to self can sometimes be this, this veiled thing. Well, this, this one author that I was reading said, imagine yourself on a cruise, And you're out in the middle of some ocean somewhere, and somehow or another you manage to fall overboard. And there you are. And oh, by the way, you don't know how to swim. And so you're flailing out there in this deep ocean, and people are gathering around on the deck, and they're watching you, and they think you're going to drown. And somebody has the presence of mind to fling one of those life preservers out there, And just as you are about ready to lose consciousness and go under, it lands right in front of you and you just, you manage to hook that thing, grab onto it, all you're worth. And they pull you up onto the boat. 
and you're laying there, coughing and spitting up water. And uh, finally, you open your eyes, and, and there's everybody looking at you because you've just been rescued. And the first words out of your mouth are, how did I look in the rescue? Did I do a great job of grabbing onto that life preserver? You know, were my muscles well-defined as I was clinging to it? What'd you think? How did I do? And then, of course, the author's question was, would you look at that person like they're absolutely nuts? Yes. Yes, we would throw them back in. Gift of mercy and compassion right here in the front row. But isn't that true of us? The reality is we somehow think that we have an important part in this process of salvation when in reality we just grabbed that life preserver that God threw to us and grace is, as we often say, such an amazing and undeserved thing. Well, we were working our way prior to last week through a statement that Paul had written to the, to the Corinthian believers when he's reminding them of the way that God does things just doesn't make sense. You remember he referred to, to the wisdom of the cross and Christ's salvation as being foolishness to the world. And, and people look at that. And, and the kingdom of God values are just so contrary to the kingdom of this world values. And so folks look, and, and it doesn't make sense. But Paul said, it doesn't make sense, but, but the reality is, this is who God is, and this is the way that he does things, and this is what he has done. And so one of those values are the values of imparting the, the character of himself, the character of his son, to those who have become his adopted children by faith in Christ. Paul said, for believers who have put their trust in Christ, Jesus has become for them their righteousness, their holiness, and their redemption. Again, perfect example of, of those rather upside-down values of the kingdom of God. And, and so when we understand that Jesus is our righteousness, bottom line, we have nothing to fear. Because really, the only thing that we ought to fear in life is a holy God and the fact that we stand separated from him because of our sin that separates us. So when we understand that Jesus has become our righteousness, it's like, whoa, that's taken care of. Big relief, big burden has been taken off of us. We can live then into the reality of what it means to be crucified with Christ because we know we have confidence by faith in him that we are right with God. Nothing to be fearful about. And so as people who are made new by God, we can leave behind care and concern for self, which is what the sin nature drives us to do, care for self. We can leave that behind and we can give ourselves wholly to God and, and to loving others. And so the righteousness of Christ is ours. To die to self is life in Christ. His righteousness, we've learned, is the key to giving up concern for ourselves because his death has freed us from the bondage to sin. We sang a lot about that this morning. Bondage to the sin nature that drives us to make everything about 
us, our security, our needs, our time, our priorities, me, me, me. Romans 8, we've heard these words. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. By grace, amen. By grace, we are saved. And so the redeemed no longer have to worry about themselves. That is the responsibility of their Heavenly Father. He's got it. He's got us covered. And then we also learn what it means for Christ to be our holiness. We are saved and we are set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. We're saved and we're set apart by God and for God. We're special to the Father, just as Jesus the Son is special to the Father. I hope that grabs your heart. You are on a status with Jesus as children of God, his beloved sons and daughters, beloved as son Jesus. And we're set apart for a purpose. In the words of Peter, we've heard these, we're chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. For what reason? So that we can live life and have a great time and do what we want to do. I'm sorry, no. It says, so that we'll declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's our purpose. The reason that we're saved. Now, I hope you heard those descriptors again. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God, all plural. An important part we've learned of being crucified with Christ is to surrender our individual identity and begin thinking of ourselves as part of something that is much larger and more important than me. To be part of a group of people that gives their lives to declaring the praises of God. And it's that group then that gives witness to who Jesus is. That is what it means to give praise to God, witness to the Son and what He has done for us on the cross. He has become our holiness. We are set apart and put into this group of folks who have a new mission in life, not to live for self, but to live for Him and to declare His praises, the one who who rescued us. And the life that we live together, the actions, the attitudes that we bring to that life, that we, that we lay on the table as we, as we live in relationship with one another, those actions and attitudes, they're of utmost importance. Because right there is where the enemy of God will attack us every time. Often, he will do everything in his power to get us to think and to act according to the old nature. Make it about you. Make it about you. Make it about you. The enemy and his hordes will do their best to discourage, to depress, to cause doubt and fear and anxiety. That is a great ringer, I just have to say. (laughs) I'm guessing that my young friend up here is embarrassed by it, so... She'll, rename, she'll name, uh, remain nameless. <laughs> Can I have that ringer? <laughs> that was really cute. <laughs> so how do we respond 
to those things that the enemy throws at us, those seeds of doubt, those seeds of discouragement. How do we, and I mean we, because we are part of the people of God, and God does not intend for us to to stand and to endure on our own. Remember, that was a part of our teaching last week. The, the body, it fits right here. We, we come alongside one another. We, we offer the gifts that God has given us to one another for the strengthening and encouragement of the body. And, and it's, we become what, what I have thought of this week as, as a redemptive gathering of, of people or a, a redemptive community. I'll say more about that in just a minute. And then the third thing that Paul said to the Corinthians that Jesus has become for us, he has become our redemption. He's become our redemption. Romans 3 states that that righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, and they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I love the word redeem in the scriptures. It's, it's always been one of my favorites. To, to redeem something is to change its status. It is, take, it is to take something that is broken and to make it whole. It is take, to take something that is lost and to, to make it found. Take something that, that has no identity and to give it status. The Greek word is an interesting word that we translate for redemption. It's a word that's really taken out of that first century slave market. It's when someone came along and paid the price for a slave not to further enslave them in their household, but to set them free. It was a ransom. And so that word redemption that we use has the idea of of ransom. And so when Paul says that Jesus has become the redemption of God's people, he's referring to a release from slavery. And that, of course, would go with his thinking about being in bondage to sin and to the sin nature. He's referring to a release from that. They have been redeemed from slavery to sin because Jesus paid the ransom. Now, just follow with me for just one more minute here, but it's not because Jesus came to the marketplace and laid money on the table. Jesus became the ransom. He paid the ransom, yes but he was the ransom. Jesus became a slave to sin for us. He took that old slave robe, that sin slave robe that we wore, and he put it on himself and then gave himself to the slaver as a trade. And then, through his death and his resurrection, he broke the power of sin to enslave us ever again. So when we speak of being crucified with Christ and death to self, 
we're talking about having the power of Christ in us to not return to a life of slavery to sin, which is service to self and rejection of God. Make sense? Christ is our redemption. Now, our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10. And and I think it has much to say to us about being a redemptive gathering of people. Continue as, as as we go through this together. Think in terms of the plural. We are a redemptive gathering. We are the redemptive people. We are a redemptive community. What I mean by that is that we are a place where the reality of what Christ has done for us, we believe can always be happening in the lives of others. And and it, it is an ongoing thing. Theologically, in the sense of we have been saved, but practically in the work of the Spirit of God who is at work each day in our lives, we are continually being reminded of that salvation and being saved and being perfected and being further set apart. And, and, and it's us. That's happening to us. And my gosh, you look excited about this. Okay? So what Christ has done for us then is the centerpiece of our life and our conversation together. It shapes and informs everything. It shapes how we think and how we talk. It shapes how we think of one another. It shapes what can be our concerns of what others may think of us. Christ's redemption is the centerpiece. You know, some translations give this text that we're going to read in Hebrews 10, the heading, A Call to Persevere. And and that's given in light of what Jesus has accomplished for his people So let me just read a few of the statements that he makes, and then we're going to jump right into the text. The writer has been comparing for the previous nine chapters faith in Christ to the Old Testament law and system of sacrifice, where the atonement for sin was never achieved. And so listen to what the writer says just before we read our text. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Another statement. When he had offered for all time, when Jesus had offered himself for all time, one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, the place of authority and finality, the place of power and control. It is finished when Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. Another statement. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And one other one. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. It's been taken care of in Jesus. So that's, uh, that's where the writer comes to just at the end of chapter 9. And then we stand together and we read these verses from chapter 10. And as, course, as, as you might expect, it, it does begin with, therefore, based on what we've just heard, those are wow statements. So let's read together. Therefore, 
brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. When you think about the the Old Testament stories and and people that are familiar. People who came into the presence of God or encountered the presence of God, what was their response? Do you, do you recall? Like, maybe a story in particular? What, in general, was the response of being in the presence of God? Yeah. It was, uh-oh. <laughs> Woe is me. That was Isaiah's response when he had that vision of, of God in the temple. You remember the, the people of Israel said to Moses when he came down from the mountain, no, 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 you speak to us. <laughs> because if God speaks to us and we're in his presence, we'll die. <laughs> so there is that, that, that sense of, of fear and, and trembling to be in the presence of God was more often than not terrifying. People on their faces, some struck down because they were sinful. And so this text, obviously written by someone we don't know who for sure, who, who really understood and knew the Old Testament system, understood the law and the system of sacrifice, this text starts off with a sense of amazement, I think. Since we have confidence since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. No one ever had confidence to enter the most holy place. It was the most frightening place on earth. But since we have confidence, how? By the blood of Jesus. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, a high priest whose offering has secured our redemption, because this is true, says the writer, then then let's give ourselves to three what I'm calling life-giving activities. Those aren't his words, those are, are my words. Let us give ourselves to this. Let us draw near to God, he says. Us, let us, plural draw near to God, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, and let us consider 
how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. All right, Don, can we have that next slide? Let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This is the whole statement. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So I just want you to uh, talk with your neighbor for a minute. Why does the writer of Hebrews exhort us to draw near to God? And why is cleansing from a guilty conscience, which the language is past event, why is that important? Why is that important? Lack of a guilty conscience and drawing near to God. Talk with your neighbor about that for a minute. Really significant truth here. Okay, we ready? Let's talk about it for a minute. What do you think? Why the exhortation to draw near to God? And, and what about that, that cleansing of a guilty conscience? What, what do you think? What did your neighbor say? Just some thoughts. Ah. Uh, we can go home. That was good. <laughs> Excellent. What else? Sort of live, live more fully into what he's done for us. Okay. Oh, I feel your pain, brother. Man. <laughs> It'll come back. <laughs> Absolutely. When you were a child, or maybe not even child, you do something wrong. And you know that you've sinned against someone. Do you just run right into their presence? Say, oh, i got to tell you what I did. No. At least I didn't. I'm sure you all did. <clears throat> My goodness. You just you want to hide. You, just, you beat yourself up over the fact that, oh, I've, I've done this, or, or perhaps I've done this again. And, and so we bring that into our experience with God as our Father. But we've got to stand on the truth of what Romans 8 teaches us. There's no condemnation. And so the guilt has been taken care of and we don't have to live there. We come into the presence of God. I like what Sam said because it's a new thing. Simply put, we come into the presence of God. We draw near to God because we can. Because we can. Because we get to. Because it's, it's a part of the blessing of, of being his children. And we don't do that with any sense of, of arrogance. Same writer in chapter 4 says that we can come into the presence of God with boldness. But that is a, that is a boldness that is confident in what Jesus has done. And it doesn't stem from us. Boldness doesn't mean arrogantly. It's, it's just that humble confidence. It's, it's awe of what Christ has done, what he has become for us. And, and again, the exhortation, us, plural, let us draw near to God. I think that's one of the primary life-giving activities that we have as a redemptive gathering, as a redemptive community, <clears throat> is to remember and to remind one another of this blessing, of this privilege. Because slavery to sin is so ingrained on us that, that we, 
we easily go back and we serve ourselves and we sin and the Spirit then shines light into our lives and we see what we've done and, ah, we feel so terrible. And then it, it can become, if we don't immediately come into the presence of God and draw near to Him, it just becomes a black hole that sucks us right back down. Life in a fallen world distracts us It calls to us, it entices us to be satisfied with anything and everything other than God, the one who made us for himself. And so when we give in, when we blow it, we sin, we can feel such guilt that we can't imagine that we're going to be welcomed into the presence of God. But we are. Our hearts have been sprinkled. I love the sacrificial imagery here with the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that bids us Return to the source of new life. I think we need to remind one another of that often. Imagine a place where a fall into sin, excuse me, does not result in judgment or condemnation, but instead imagine bringing that to a brother or a sister and saying, oh, I need you to to pray for me. I need you to remind me of the truth. Here's what I've done. Imagine that brother or sister wrapping you in their arms and saying, oh, you did it again? Me too. Let's go together into the presence of the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And those words, I think, are interesting. Having having bodies that are washed with pure water. More than likely, it's a statement of baptism, of when you were baptized. We often talk at Applewood about baptism being sort of that, that Ebenezer, that reminder of what I believed then and who I became. And so the importance of, of community, observing for a brother and sister to say, oh, I stood there the day that you were baptized and made profession of faith in Jesus. I remember, I know who you are in Christ. Let us draw near to God because we can and because he is our life. We must remind one another of that often because the old sin master floods us with shame and guilt. He lies to us. He wants us to believe that God will not have us, but he does have us. And he bids us to come into his presence to always find forgiveness and to take off that that slave robe that we have slipped back on for a short time because it's covering up that gorgeous robe of righteousness that he gave us, Christ's righteousness. Those who are the redemptive gathering of God's people remind one another on a regular basis that nothing changes who we are in Christ. Nothing, not ever. There's a second life-giving activity that, that we read. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. It's an important verb there that the writer uses. It's It's to hold tightly, it's to to hold fast, it's to cling to something that you have already grabbed onto. Again, it's it's a look back to remember what you've done. And in chapter 6, earlier in the same letter, the writer refers to hope as an anchor for the soul. 
And that anchor is rooted in the character of God. God's people, they hold fast to the hope that they have in Jesus as their redeemer, as their redemption, because it's the character of God that stands behind it. And it goes back to Paul's idea of what is the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. You know, we we look at that and we say, wow, that's either the greatest news I've ever heard or it's the dumbest stuff that's ever been, you know, concocted. And so that's your choice. You know, go by faith and it's the greatest stuff you've ever had or just say, you know, I'm not going there because it doesn't make any sense. The slave master of sin wants us to doubt the good character of God. Let's be honest, life's hard. Life is hard. Life is full of hard stuff. We face circumstances and events that that challenge our confidence in God. So what do we do? Well, we've got a couple of choices. We We can try to wrestle through it on our own, and we might. Or we could reach out to a brother or sister who we know loves us and cares about us and, and solicit their encouragement and their prayers to, to help us hold unswervingly to that hope that we know we've been given in Christ. Those of you who, who get the, the newsletters from our friends, the McLeans, the missionaries in, in the Indonesian jungle, oh my gosh, their, their last newsletter is just heart-wrenching. And I said to Sharice, I said, do you, do you just kind of read between the lines that there's, there's despair there? Like, why, why are we doing this? And she said, yeah. And so what does my wife do? She immediately gets on email and is firing off a message of, of hope and a reminder that we love you and we're praying for you. You know, not a message of condemnation, not a buck up, you weenies. You know, life is hard and and you're living in a terrible place and you're facing incredibly difficult circumstances and we love you and so does God, you know. Help them press into and hang on to that that hope. You know, and here's the thing that occurs to me and I think I've, I've mentioned this before. It's such a relief to know that we don't have to fix one another. I don't have to fix you. Praise be to God. And you don't have to fix me as much as you might want to. That is just the coolest thing. There's nowhere in Scripture where we are exhorted to fix one another. And I think sometimes that's what holds us back from entering fully into relationships of redemption, of coming alongside and grabbing brothers and sisters who are in a hard, painful, discouraging place because we don't have any answers. We don't have to have answers that will fix their life. We remind them of who God is. And we remind them of what he has done for them in his son. And we, we speak that truth into their lives in a way that expresses love and concern and care and comes alongside of. We don't have to fix one another. Such a cool truth. We simply come alongside and offer to walk with them and help them hold unswervingly to that hope that we know that they have professed. Third life-giving activity, and it really flows out of the second one, is the writer says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, 
Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, hard stuff can create such discouragement and such a loss of hope that, that any of us can want to, to give up doing for God and for others what we have been doing. Which is exactly, again, what the old slave master wants. He wants us to withdraw from one another. He wants us to focus upon self. He wants us to be discouraged to the point that we just, we just pull back and hide. I think it's interesting. Some translations will make that piece about not meeting together into a fourth exhortation in this text. It would read, let us consider how, may we, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, and let us not give up meeting together. But the language really is not best understood, the, the sentence structure that way. It really ties not giving up on meeting together back to the idea of how can we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Of course. Because when the spurring on of one another happens best, it is when we are face to face. It is when when we are looking that brother or sister in Christ in the eyes and we are, we are seeing their pain, we are hearing their pain, and they are experiencing in us that desire to minister to them and encourage them and spur them on. Interesting word, that word spurring. I think the English translators, I couldn't find it. I think the English translators use the idea of spurs in the horse. That's an irritating thing. The horse doesn't like it. Well, that's this word in the Greek language. It, it really means to be an irritation or an exasperation. Boy, that's an exciting thought, isn't it? I'm going to spur you on to love and good deeds and be a pain in your butt. Or side, sorry. I, but I think it's this. I think the idea is that reminding others of the truth of who they are in Christ, reminding them of the good character of God, when they are at a low place, it can be, doesn't always have to be, but it can be an irritant. It, it can even be an exasperation to them. That's what the word means, irritating or exasperating. But brothers and sisters, if we care, and the Spirit is empowering us and filling us with a concern for a brother and sister, he also will give us the words of truth that are right for that brother or sister so that we share them lovingly. We share them in a genuine, winsome way. We don't share them with a hint of arrogance because we've arrived we share them in a sense of humility because we know that it could be as soon as tomorrow that the tables are turned. And there I sit in need of them 
speaking that into my life and irritating and exasperating me with the truth of who God is and what he has done for me in Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians that this is speaking the truth in love. Indeed it is. Brothers and sisters, I hope you, I hope you get a sense of how, how essential these life-giving activities are with one another and how at the very heart of it all is death to self. Death to self is life in Christ. And when the Spirit takes over, we become people who are life-giving because we're not in the way any longer. It is God ministering through us to strengthen and empower His people for the mission and the purpose to which they've been called to declare His praises. The God who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know, and I love the way that the, uh, the writer sort of, sort of ends that. And, and let's do this even more as we see the day approaching. It's almost like a, an afterthought, but it's really it's a huge motivator. I think one of the things that, that the, the enemy wants us to believe, whether we recognize it as that or not, I, I certainly don't because I'm just too dumb. But I think he wants us to, to somehow think that the return of the Lord Jesus is far away. Why wouldn't we think that? People have been thinking it for 2,000 years. And they've been disappointed. But I think the encouragement of God's word is that, that there is a day. Jesus is coming. We don't know when that is. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a week. Could be a hundred years. We'll all be dead and we won't see it. But if it's not, then that means that we ought to be motivated to live as the people of God, empowered by His Spirit, spilling over His grace in all that we do and all that we say for the sake of those who are not ready to meet our Lord Jesus on the day that He appears. Amen? Amen? Amen. Praise team, come on up and lead us. Father, as we close together this morning, thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the truth that you indwell us and that you empower us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are our redemption. You have taken the wreck of our lives and have turned it into a treasure that the King loves. May that truth resonate in our hearts, that place of emotion where we make decisions and sometimes those decisions are are, are really skewed. May it resonate in our minds so that we can really know with confidence and allow that reality of who we are in Christ because of what he has done to shape our lives, to shape our thinking about who we are, who others are, what this life is all about. For your glory and for your praise, we thank you. Amen.